Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm the group's resident here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. And so whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by his word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in him. We say thank you to Steve and Molly for sharing their story with us. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's just good to see all of you. It's good to be with you. Man, what an awesome worship set this morning. What an awesome testimony video. Uh, I'm excited to dive in. I got a lot to share today, so I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, How many of you, your favorite Chick-fil-A restaurant is Chick-fil-A? Come on, that should be everybody. That's what I'm after here, right? My favorite restaurant, maybe ever, uh, is Chick-fil-A, but it's definitely my favorite fast food restaurant. I love Chick-fil-A, I love showing up. Uh, it just feels like you're in the South, right? Maybe if you lived in the South, you're like, no, it's, it's fake, it's you're posing. I, I love showing up. To me, everybody speaks with a Southern accent when I walk in. Even if they're like my neighbor, uh, I walk in, I'm just used to the, to the Southern hospitality. They always say, what's the signature phrase, right, that you hear? My pleasure. It's my favorite. I'll say thank you 18 times, right, giving my order just to keep hearing. It. It's kind of like Maslow's dogs, like you, you ring a bell and their mouths start watering. I, I show up to Chick-fil-A and I say thank you just to hear them say, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. I love showing up to Chick-fil-A. I love the drive-through experience. Said no one ever at any other restaurant. I love the drive-through experience. I mean, just every part of Chick-fil-A, they have thought with us in mind, haven't they? The customer, we're always right. But when we go to Chick-fil-A, we actually believe that's true, right? They go out of their way. You don't even have to pray for the food because you know they're praying for it in the back. It's pre-blessed. It's Christian chicken. It's just fantastic, right? When you go to Chick-fil-A, I love Chick-fil-A because they treat me like a 100% consumer and I let them, right? It's the best. Do you ever walk into the wrong environment acting like a consumer? Do you ever do that? Maybe it's just me. Do you ever show up with the same expectation that you're here to serve me? Or you, or you show up and you're like, I want it this way, not that way. Maybe, maybe you show up to your workplace like that. Maybe you show up to your marriage like that. Maybe you show up to your neighborhood that way. We love environments that treat us like pure consumers. It doesn't matter if it's a shopping mall or if it's going to Starbucks or if it's Amazon or Netflix, whatever it is, if they treat us like it's all about us, like we're 100% consumer, we love those environments. But the problem is so many of us carry that approach, that identity as 100% consumer into the wrong settings and it creates problems in our lives. It creates problems in our relationships, problems in our marriages, problems in our culture and society that we can look at today and go, why is this so broken? I think one of the biggest underlying factors is we can't turn it off. We go into so many different environments thinking 100% like a consumer. And what we talked about earlier in this series, two weeks ago, we said one in two adults feels isolated and feels lonely in our culture today. Do you think maybe it's because we're approaching relationships and community as consumers? Even if you don't, I do. 
And we're going to unpack it together today of what, how this approach or how this identity or how this way of thinking as a consumer actually creates repercussions in our lives far deeper than maybe what we're aware of. So I want to read the text. This is the text we've been in for the last couple of weeks. It's Genesis chapter three, verse five. It starts with this. It says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Pay attention to this word eat. I highlighted it a couple times. For when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and say it with me. She ate it. All right, let's keep going to the next verse. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he, say it, he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. The word ate, the reason I keep coming back to it over and over is the Hebrew word a cow. Everybody say a cow. A cow is a unique word in Hebrew, just like all of the words in Hebrew. There, there's less words than there are in the English dictionary. So, so oftentimes one word has multiple meanings in some of the original languages that the Bible was written. So a cow means to consume, devour, or to take space away. Isn't that interesting that it uses the word consume? That was the number one word that kept popping up when I did research on it. A cow. So when Adam and Eve looked at the fruit, they looked at it. It looked good. It was pleasing to the eye and, and they didn't just eat it, right? We think, you know, put it in your mouth, chew it and swallow. No, no, they, they consumed it. In fact, I might argue with you, they consumed it before it hit their mouth. They consumed it. They saw a product. They saw a thing. Or, or maybe like us today, sometimes we see people as a way to get what I really want. I'm going to take this. I'm going to devour it or consume it or to take space away from it so that it's no longer in the original form that sometimes it was even created in. When we consume something, we break it down to a form that is often impossible to put it back in its original form. So, so many of us are used to thinking like consumers all the time that we do this with people. That we see people as a means to our own end. We see our family as a means to our own end or our neighbors or our coworkers or our classmates. We see people from this value mindset of this is what you do for me. And as long as it keeps playing itself out that way, everything works. Except that one and two out of everybody in the room, everybody watching online, everybody in our culture struggles with isolation and loneliness chronically over and over and over again. Do you ever come into the local church thinking like a, a consumer? Do you ever come into a church thinking this is what this church does for me? This is what I need. And so I come here and I enjoy this because I can consume what is all about me so that I can go back out into my world or job or environment better. I think so many of us, we, we approach church like a consumer and that's actually not what Jesus created the church to be at all. And because of that, we're missing something that Jesus desired for his church if we only ever function as consumers. So church isn't that different than other environments. You can consume other environments, other areas of community like a consumer. So church is like that because it's made up of a group or a collection of people. But what are we all after? 
what, what do you actually want in relationships? If I, had, if I asked you that, or if I put you on the spot, what is it that you truly desire? And as, as I've sat with this, you know the conclusion I came to? Love. I've, I think all of us actually want real love. Is it possible from other people to be 100% known and still 100% loved. You know, Brian talked last week about this, you know, can we be known and still loved? And we can with the person of Jesus, but if we think about the church and if we think about people, if we're actually after love, not just vertically, but also horizontally, is it possible that we're coming into environments of community? Maybe it's marriages, maybe it's with our kids, maybe it's with neighbors, maybe it's with coworkers or friends, that the driver that's deep within us is love. It is mutual love. It's affection. It's relationship. It's to be fully known. But what if I said this? It's impossible for you to experience that love if you approach it as a consumer. So let me, let me change uh, let me pivot here for a second. I want to show a picture. Uh, I'm reading this book right now, and uh, it's called From Strength to Strength. And in this book, it articulates three different friendships. Uh, it talks about three different types or three different styles of friends. So as I walk through this with you, I want you to think in my head, who do I know that would fit in that bucket? So here's how it outlines it. Three different friends. The first one, this red bucket, uh, the author identifies them as utility friends. The, these are friends that serve a specific purpose in your life. So how many of you, you go, if your truck breaks or, or if your air conditioner fails or if your stove is no longer functioning, do you have a guy? Do you have a guy? Come on, some of you, my guy's in this room, right? Some of you, I go, hello, it's me again. No idea what I'm doing, but you're my guy, right? How many of you, you have a guy, you have a girl, you have somebody, some crisis hits, something breaks, you need something. The person you think of belongs in this bucket. It's a utility friendship. It's a utility relationship. It's a relationship that, that accomplishes something specific, but if it's not there, the relationship falls apart. Do you have people like that in your life that serve a utility value? Here's one of the things the author says. Uh, he says, the relationship exists solely for what you can get from the other person. Second bucket. These are called deal friends. These are friends that are based on pleasure. That, that oftentimes this person, you have something that you just love about them. It's just funny or they're interesting or they do something unique that's, that's attractive to you. There's something, I'll read again what he said, something you like and admire about the other person. They're funny, they're entertaining, they're smart. You like an inherent quality which makes it more elevated than a utility friend, but they're still basically instrumental. Do you have those people in your life? People that serve a, a value, serve a function. I, I moved a lot growing up, and I learned that a lot of people in my life fit in this bucket. That as I lived in Chicago, in central Illinois, and then Midland, Michigan, and then Grand Rapids, as I moved around growing up, I realized I had a lot of people that fit into this bucket that I thought were like real friends, true friends, like close relationships. But as soon as I moved away, or as soon as there was something of utility or instrumental value that fell apart, so did the relationship. Now, this last one, you can probably guess, it's real friends. 
Uh, Aristotle calls these perfect friends, and it's based on willing each other's well-being and a shared love for something good and virtuous outside of either of you. But it is not utilitarian at all. There's nothing to gain from this relationship other than a friend. I'm not trying to use them, extort them for something. You're not approaching the relationship with some sort of gap that you just need that person to fill. I mean, there's a variety of different ways to, to describe what a utility means in a relationship. This, this one means, I just love them, period. I want to see them do well. I want to see them grow. I want to see them get opportunities. I celebrate when they win, and I grieve when they lose. I actually mourn with them when they get awful news, when they get diagnosed with cancer, or their marriage begins falling apart, or they, they begin questioning their existence or role in life. I, I, I get on their level, and I just sit because I love this person, and I, I have a deep desire to will their success, their growth. This bucket revolves all around love. Which bucket is most full in your life? If you think of your friends, your relationships, your people at work, your family, your marriage, your kids, in-laws, classmates, roommates, which bucket is most full in your life? Which bucket does Jesus fit in? Would he agree with your answer? I mean, if I'm being really honest, I, I hate that question. Because if I'm honest, Jesus, if I look at different seasons of my life, they're marked by the red bucket and the blue bucket, mostly. Jesus, here's what you do for me, and I come to you when I need something, and when everything breaks and everything goes bad, and I'm in a crisis, or I'm at the bottom, or I need a bailout, or whatever, whatever it is. You look at the seasons of my life, the seasons that, that I, I, I clung for, reached for, grasped for something from Jesus. It was often from a utilitarian approach, like, Jesus, I just need something from you, but what's funny is that's not how Jesus approaches us or relationship with us at all. Jesus doesn't need anything from us. He simply loves us, desires us, wants a relationship with us. So maybe part of the reason why we come into a church setting or a group setting or different community settings and we walk away disappointed or we walk away critical or we walk away cynical is because we're approaching it with the wrong thing in mind and it's us. Maybe the community's not broken. Maybe it's the campus isn't broken or the classroom isn't broken or, or the workplace isn't broken or the neighborhood isn't broken. Maybe our nation isn't broken. Maybe it's us. Maybe I'm broken. Which bucket does Jesus fit in? Here's the great thing about this whole analogy is you get to decide. If you don't like the bucket he's in, move him. Or if you don't like the bucket that other friends or people in your life are in, then move them. 
uh, I told you, just for me, uh, it's funny. As I've looked at my role in the church, I had no idea I was going to be a pastor for most of my life. And uh, my approach to church, I like to, to go back to that and go, I think I can relate to a lot of you now uh, because I remember what that was like. A little bit different. My dad was a pastor growing up in the church. And so I, uh, church served a utility value for me much of my life. And if I'm really honest with you, I showed up to a lot of church services or, or I showed up to church programs or small groups or whatever it was. And my attitude was very cynical or very critical as long as I was disengaged. If I was removed from it or if I was far from it, I would show up and go, yep, there it is again. Didn't like the music today. Or I would show up again and go, yep, my pastor dropped the ball. There, there I was, I needed something, and I expressed a need and a value and a desire, like, please spend time with me. I'm in a crisis, and I was told, no, I'm too busy right now. And I walked away going, church, man, and people, and pastors. It, it happened, it didn't matter if I was serving on a team or if I went on a mission trip, whatever it was, I was looking for something to get it out in every environment in the church. I kept walking away disappointed, frustrated angry and dissatisfied and it created this critical cynical mindset here was the problem i was approaching the church as a consumer i was coming into these environments saying what are you going to do for me and where it really changed is when I went off to college, I remember I had three different college roommates that were all like real Christians. And I remember we were looking for a church and we kept bouncing church to church to church or ministry to ministry to ministry, looking for the thing that catered to us the best. What if I told you if, if, if that's how we think or if that's how we function in the body of Christ, we will miss out on what Jesus intended for the church since the very beginning. It's incongruent with how Jesus created it. So here, if I boil it down, here's how I would say it, is we were not made to contribute for love. We were made to contribute from it. If you walk away with anything, please walk away with this. Jesus has something for us. He's overflowing with love for us. He has a desire for a relationship with us. If you can experience the relationship and love of Jesus, you will no longer go into all of your different contexts of community and relationship, of family and roommates, of workplace and neighborhood. You will no longer go into these environments with a need from that group to serve a utility value of love in your life because it will already have been satisfied. In fact, it's from that place that you can go into every other environment and you bring something that that entire room or that entire group or that entire staff is desperate for. We were not made to contribute for love. We were made to contribute from it. So what did Jesus say about love and relationships? Let's just go there. John 13, verse 34. Here's what he says. A new command I give you. Say it with me. Love. Jesus gave a command. He gave a directive, right? If you're a boss or if you have employees or if you're a parent, if you've been in charge of anything ever, you get authority. Jesus took being in charge, took authority, and he said, love each other. Think about that for a second. Jesus said, love one another. Now, and then he makes it worse. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, why is it worse? Because Jesus demonstrated his love pretty significantly. 
Let me keep reading. Here's what Jesus' disciples said. 1 John 4.11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you notice the theme here? Is followers of Jesus are called to contribute to the lives of other people by loving them, not acting like consumers in search of it. We're called to come into context, into environments, into workplaces, into staffs, different because we've experienced the love of Jesus and it overflows as an output into the lives and relationships with people around us. So Galatians 5.13 says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of us have heard this verse before, but let me read the second part of it that changes it even a little bit more. It says, but if you bite and devour each other. Notice that word, devour. Does it kind of jump out at you? I hope so. That's why we highlighted it that way. So it pops. But if you bite and devour, have you ever experienced somebody biting you or devouring you? I have a four-year-old right now who likes to bite. He's learning that. We wrestle on the ground. And then I go, no, you cheated. You can't bite the soft spot of my arm. You ever been bitten by somebody, though, in real life? Kind of like a, a, a backstab, kind of like, like, wow, that had some weight to it. That had a punch. Why did it sting a little bit? Here, here's, what, here's what they're saying. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If I read this in the context of our country today, it's almost like a prophetic warning. Like, hey, if you want to consume everything and everyone, if you want to treat friends that way and employees that way and bosses that way, organizations that way, the government that way, if you, if you want to approach every facet of life as a consumer, and if you want to bite each other and devour each other, you know the word devour is translated in Greek to the word consume. Isn't that interesting? It's only used twice in the whole New Testament. It's translated as consume. What it's saying is if you want to consume people and consume relationships and consume each other, watch out. You're going to destroy each other. And look at the state in which we live. Not just macro. Not, not just big picture. Personal. Jesus is inviting us to something totally different. Why don't we want to do that? How come so many of us don't want to engage in relationship the way that Jesus actually designed it? Because love requires sacrifice. Somebody write that one down. Love requires sacrifice. It demands it. And sacrifice, can I just say it this way? Sacrifice sucks. It's hard. It's painful. It requires us to, to humble ourselves, to serve each other, to, to forego what I want or what I need or what I desire, to actually put that aside. And for many of us, to actually disregard it forever for the sake of someone else who often doesn't care. Sacrifice is awful. 
and yet it demonstrates love. That's why so many of us choose not to. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why, why, why did he have to, to stretch out his arms like this over a plank of wood? Why, why did they have to drive the nails into his hands and into his feet? I mean, imagine, can you just imagine for a second being there in that environment and you're watching it unfold and you see Jesus and, and the, the little you know about Jesus or maybe a lot that you know about Jesus, you, you've never seen him hurt somebody, you, you've never seen him talk poorly of somebody, you've heard him be direct, right? Haven't we all? You, you maybe didn't walk away feeling like you, you were special all the time, but you did walk away feeling like, man, that made a lot of sense. Jesus, there he was, he went to, to the cross, right? His hands are stretched out and you, you'd see the nails go in each arm and his feet and you would hear the hammer just hitting it in and you'd hear him cry out and you'd see him wince in pain. Why did Jesus have to do that? Because he loved us. Because it was a demonstration of his sacrifice. That's why, I mean, if I read it this way, 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So in all the other texts that talks about us bringing love into these different environments, if you want a definition of love, there it is. Imagine being on site and you hear the hammer hitting the nails driving it into the cross, and then you see them hoist Jesus up, and you hear the thud of the cross as it drops into the hole, and there he is just hanging there. I mean, just picture, close your eyes for a second, picture like you're there, you're, you're at the site of the cross, and you see Jesus gasping for air. You see him labor in his breathing. You're looking for his disciples, this big group of people that all followed, and it's a very small group that's only there now. And you see him bloody. You see him stripped away. You, you almost feel embarrassed for him, like they're, they're shaming him. And then, then they take the crown of thorns, the thorns and they, they jam it on his head. And the blood and the sweat starts dripping down because it's hot and it's dripping down and it gets into his eyes and you can tell it's burning because he keeps blinking and he's trying to get it out and he's blinking and it's all over. Do you know what you would have seen if you were there? If Jesus looked right at you, do you know what you would have seen in his eyes? Love. That's what you would have seen. This is what love is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You wouldn't see resentment. You wouldn't see anger. You wouldn't see bitterness. You wouldn't see entitlement. You certainly wouldn't see consumerism in the eyes of Jesus at this point. What you would see if he looked you dead in the eyes, right down the middle, is you would see love. Jesus loves you. When you can experience a love like that, it changes everything else. I love what Carol Ann said earlier. 
A lot of us are operating out of the place that we forget what Jesus actually did for us on the cross. That he took our sin and he took our shame and he took our guilt and he took everything that should prevent us from experiencing that type of love. Jesus took all of that on himself, laid his life down, and he said, I pick you. I want you. I love you. Jesus, when we can experience that type of love, there's nothing else that can hold us back. There's nothing else that we need. It's because we're not made to contribute to this community. If we go back to the church, we're not made to contribute to this community for love, but from it. This is the last week of our series called Life Together. Here's just what I want to ask you. What sacrifice in love are you making? What sacrifice in love do you need to make for the kingdom of God? I sat with this one for a while before I, I asked today. And I started paying attention to the people that I'm seeing serve and contribute. It's a lot of the same people over and over and over. I mean, in similar environments, doesn't matter if it's outside coffee or lobby or, or worship or tech or children's or students. I, what I see a lot is a lot of the, the same people serving in the same capacities over and over and over and over again. And here's what I want to share. It, it, my guess is a lot of people who have been serving and giving and contributing not to get something just as an overflow. My concern is you might leave here going, I need to do more. It's not the heart of this message. My other concern is that there's a whole group of people here that aren't serving or aren't contributing to the kingdom of God. And they, they just want to give excuses. That, that's not the the heart or the point of this either. We, we were all designed and created to contribute to the kingdom of God from a place of experiencing the love of Jesus. So can I share as we end here, maybe, maybe some of you need to take a next step and it might be here at the church, it might be outside of here might be in your workplace or in the marketplace. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be outside of here. So I'll, I'll let you discern that with the Holy Spirit. But maybe some of you, as you leave today, you need to start a Bible study in your workplace and not be a consumer of Christianity, but a, a contributor of it in an environment that desperately needs it. Maybe some of you need to, to lovingly sacrifice something for your employees or for your coworkers. Some of you might need to forgive a debt that is actually owed to you. Maybe some of you might need to pay to fix somebody's car. Someone might need to buy lunch for the man or the woman on the side of the road. Some of you might need to lay hands on someone who's sick and to pray for healing for them, not, not just in the comfort and safety and secrecy of your own life, but, but maybe you need to take a step and go, I'm a contributor here to the kingdom of God. And the power I wield is the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm called to step into the environments that are broken and the environments that are dark and the environments that are evil. I'm called to step in and sacrifice because that is what my God did for me. Some of you do need to serve here. Some of you do need to contribute. Some of you have musical gifts that you just will not do on a stage. We need you. 
some of you have technical gifts. I mean, you understand computers and technology. We need you. Some of you love kids or you're good with kids. We need you to help disciple the next generation of Jesus followers. Whether it's students, whether it's middle school and high school, whether it's elementary school, we, we need, if, we're, if you're going to call Frontline home, you need to be contributing to the kingdom of God somewhere. So please don't miss an opportunity to do that. If you want help, you can get help. It's frontlinegr.com slash serve. Here's a hunch if I have. Some of you need to serve here at our church, in our context, on a team that exists here. All of us need to serve out of here in our context, not as a consumer, but as a contributor to the kingdom of God. So can we close with prayer? At the end, just pray that God would, that God would just lead you. That's my heart. Not that I lead you to a specific destination, but that the Holy Spirit would lead you to a place that you need to enter into as Jesus' ambassador and representative from a place of love. So Jesus, we just come before you right now and uh, we're grateful, God, that you are not a consumer God, but a God that contributes, a God that gives, a God that lays down his own life for us, not when we earned it, not when we deserved it, not when we're at our best, but literally at our worst, God. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you into the room and God, I just pray right now that you would identify different gifts and talents and, and different assets and resources and different abilities that you have put inside of each and every one of us and that you would connect the dots, God, in our minds to show us this is where we're called to contribute. This is where we're called to give. This is where we're called to sacrifice for the purposes of your kingdom. And I pray that you would do that here. I pray that you would do that here at Frontline. I pray that you would do that in the Zero Collective and that you would do it here in our community, God, here in West Michigan. God, bring your kingdom here. And we willingly offer ourselves up to be used as your vessel to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, amen. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there, and we'll see you back here next week.